My name is Andrew Page. I'm the Pro Vice-Chancellor for Research at the University of Western Australia. And I would like to welcome all of you who have joined us for us. It's um, in the early evening, but I've seen there are some people from India, Singapore, Malaysia and Brazil. So all over the world, thanks for making the effort for joining us, which what is going to be an exciting session. I just mentioned to you that this session is being recorded. The audio of that will be made available as a podcast to you all. So sometime next week, um, you will be sent that link. The event here is being run by the University of Western Australia, which is a research intensive university. And I'm pleased to be the um, Pro Vice Chancellor of Research here. In this role, I'm really about trying to ensure that the research has a unified mission for our university, because research is at the heart of all that we do here. Because the institution is not only about training students in existing knowledge and future knowledge, it's about generating that new knowledge. It shows the value of a research intensive university that when we have a novel problem where we need novel solutions, our researchers can turn and say, we have existing knowledge that we can bring to bear on this and we can answer questions that we don't know the answer to. So that's what we're going to hear about today. As we as societies are thinking about those easing of the restrictions. So um, of the broad countries that we have here this evening, we're at various stages of that. And so our researchers here are going to provide insights about how we can cope to returning to work. And so I hope you with me are looking forward to hearing more from our four panellists this evening. And I'll be back after the Q&A session with some final comments just before we conclude. And I'd like to introduce Katerina Doherty now to hand over to her as the moderator. She is a PhD researcher, the School of Biological Sciences at UWA, and she's currently undertaking research in creating a sustainable closed nutrient cycle. She's somewhat of a star at UWA, having won the three-minute thesis competition here. And at the end, I'll give you a bit more information about the three-minute thesis. Thank you, Andrew. So before we get started with the panel, I'd like to give a brief background introduction of our four panelists this evening. Um, I'll start with Dr. Allison Imri. She is an associate professor at the School of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine in the Faculty of Medicine, Dentistry, and Health Sciences at UWA. Uh, she was awarded her PhD from the University of New South Wales for studies in HIV, virology, and immunology conducted at St. Vincent's Hospital Clinical School in the Faculty of Medicine. And prior to that, she had completed her Bachelor of Science degree at the University of Sydney. Now, her current research focus is emerging infectious diseases in the Asia-Pacific region, including the dengue viruses. She teaches virology and immunology to undergraduate and graduate students alike. Next on our panel, we have Dr. Alex Luxite, who is an associate professor and the deputy head of department management and organizations in the UWA Business School. She is a recipient of the Australian Research Council Early Career Researcher Fellowship, or DECRA. Her research focuses on three main domains, presenteeism, overqualification or underemployment, and demographic and cultural diversity at the workplace. Now, this research has been published in journals such as the Journal of Applied Psychology, Personnel Psychology, the Journal of Organizational Behavior, and the Journal of Occupational and Organizational Psychology. 
Our third panelist with us today is Dr. Laura Fruhan. She is a lecturer in applied psychology at the University of Western Australia. And her research focuses on workplace psychology, where she investigates topics such as leadership, team dynamics, work design, culture, and attitudes at work. She links these concepts with workplace safety, mental health and well-being, and other behaviors. She has conducted her current research in the energy sectors, aviation, healthcare, construction, and firefighting. And our final panelist tonight is Dr. Julian Boletere. He is the co-director at the Australian Urban Design Research Centre at the University of Western Australia. His role here includes teaching a master's program in urban design and conducting research projects for the Western Australian state government. Julian is an experienced urban designer and has worked in design offices in Australia, the US, the UK, and the Middle East. He completed a PhD and has commercially published six books. His current research interests are new city developments, urban infill development, and the design of multifunctional public open spaces. He has received funding from Research Council, Healthways, and the Western Australian government. Uh, so we'll move on to questions, and I will be directing these at specific panelists as we go. So our first question, which I'll take over, well, which I'll send to Alison Imri, is that given what we know from past epidemics, what is the likely timeline for COVID-19, and should we be worried about its continuation? Hi, that's an excellent question, and the short answer is we don't know. So COVID-19 is a new disease, right? It's, it's a disease that stands for coronavirus disease 2019, because that's when the virus that causes COVID-19 emerged at the end of 2019 in China. And it's now global, of course. So the, the virus that causes COVID-19 is SARS coronavirus 2, right? SARS 2. So um, we know very little about this virus, but actually at the same time, we know an enormous amount. We've uh, been able to do a huge amount of work in a very short time to understand, to start to understand this completely novel emergent virus, right? So we, we know a fair amount, but there's a lot more to learn. What, what, we can, what we tend to do is try to think about similar viruses and think, can we model what we think is going to happen based on a virus that we know relatively well? And the closest one um, is that's in infected humans is the original SARS coronavirus that emerged in 2002 in China as well. And that virus um, uh, circulated for about a year, just a bit more than a year, and uh, infected about 8,000 people that we know of, killed about 10% of those people, and then the virus disappeared, right? So uh, we, we, because that virus stopped transmission, and we don't understand exactly why, but it's public health, um, public health efforts basically, we don't know enough about what will happen to this virus, to this new coronavirus. This new virus we already know is much more infectious than the original SARS, and it seems to be much more virulent in, in that it causes more severe disease in more people, but we don't know that yet. We still don't have enough uh, data, right? So we all want to collect more data and, we, and, and we'll start to understand more about this virus. But I can say one thing that's come out fairly recently that has kind of changed our understanding already, and this only came out very recently, is that the duration of immunity to this infection, uh, that what we have assumed to be protective immunity, uh, is actually going to be very short, right? So the early data shows 
that once someone is infected, they'll develop an immune response, the so-called uh, immune passport, if you like, is being um, presented that way. In other words, once you're immune, you'll be safe and you won't get reinfected again, right? You won't get infected again and therefore you can go out in the world and so on. It turns out that may not be true. We had hints of this from the previous SARS virus and from the other coronaviruses, but we're starting to see this actual data now for this virus. So it turns out that uh, the immunity, uh, the duration of that presumably protected immunity may actually be very short. So this has a lot of significance for uh, how we can continue to interact, right? Once we've been, been infected, are we then immune? Are we safe? Uh, how will a vaccine be effective? How will a vaccine um, be able to induce long-term immunity? So we have to think about vaccine design and, and also um, the antivirals that are being developed. So there, there are a lot more questions that, that need to be understood we start to be understood before we can even start to think about how long uh, we think this virus can continue to circulate and, and what exposure to that virus actually means, right? So I'll... I'll Thank you, that was very well answered. Um, I'd just like to remind the audience, if you do have questions for any of our panelists, you can send them through the question and answer function at the bottom of your screen, and we will include them if we can in our Q&A session. Now, Allison, I'm going to continue um, on this trajectory with you. Um, our next question is, will a COVID-19 vaccine be a silver bullet? Or do you think we still need to carefully think about how we work and socialize with our colleagues in the future? Thank you. That's another good question. And of course, uh, there's, there's been so much talk and hope that a vaccine will be developed soon and that uh, we assume it's going to be effective as well and then protect everybody and we can come back to some semblance of a normal life but that's so so just as a reminder vaccines normally take many years to develop and then to test out in the right populations of people and before people of course you have to work uh, in vitro and then in animal models suitable animal models and then you go into people and there's, it's a phased assessment of how well a vaccine works first of all is it safe and then how do we give this vaccine to people and then what is the is it protective right is it an effective vaccine will it protect you from from transmission. So there, there are many, many questions there, and this sort of work normally takes many years. So what you've seen, I'm sure, is a lot of uh, uh, discussion about how those timelines really uh, can be shrunk down to uh, this talk about a vaccine being available, an effective vaccine being available in a year or so from now. Uh, that, that's kind of unheard of, right, for, for vaccines against uh, any disease, but, uh, but this disease uh, as well. Um, and again, um, is it going to be a silver bullet? We just don't know the answer to that. Because like, I can tell you that considering how little time there's been since this completely novel virus emerged, right, end of last year, and now it's only June, right, there are more than 100 candidate vaccines currently being trialled right being tested or not trialed necessarily depending on the stage but they're being assessed uh, they're being tested out at different stages and they will go into humans and some already are in humans right so that's the vaccine then there are antivirals and then there are other therapies which are also really interesting that are not directly antivirals and they're not vaccines so there is no single vaccine 
likely that's going to become available, there'll be many uh, candidates. So they'll all work in different ways, not all of them, but they'll work in different ways and they'll induce different, slightly different kinds of immune response. We don't know, again, how protective uh, those immune responses will be or might be. We just don't know, right? So there's going to be trials and then you have to assess is that vaccine effective? How do you assess that? You actually have to follow large cohorts of people, right? And so um, although we like to hear, oh, there's gonna be a vaccine available very soon, um, that's just the beginning, right? Or beginning of an enormous amount of work that has to be done, a lot of assessment, evaluation of whether something is really uh, effective, efficacious or not. Also, don't forget, with, with any biological, there, there is a risk of harm, right? So you have to be very careful uh, that, that you balance this up. It's, it's a risk-benefit analysis. Um, and that's certainly, that's certainly a consideration. One of the good points, though, of um, having had previous um, coronaviruses with, with uh, serious consequences for human health emerged in, in the last years, with SARS-1 and with MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which is also a coronavirus, that a vaccine development for those two agents progressed quite significantly, right? And then funding was pulled because those vaccines, you know, SARS doesn't transmit anymore, so why spend any more money on it? That was the funding agencies, not the people developing the vaccines. So there were candidates on the, on, on, on the shelf, if you like. So things have progressed a lot faster now than they have before, but we, the short answer is, we don't know if they're going to be effective. So can we, should we be thinking about how we work and socialize with our colleagues? I think once, once a vaccine's uh, approved, if you like, or goes into humans, we still can't assume that um, we can go back to a normal life. I think it's going to be years of, of um, not complete uncertainty, but being aware of what the limits are of, of these uh, of these uh, drugs and therapeutics as they come online, which they will, there'll be a lot, right? And, and we'll have more of an understanding of the disease itself, the natural history of the disease, and, and what's going to be um, feasible. And, and I hope it's all good news, right? I'm being optimistic. Thank you so much, Alison. Uh, just thinking about what we just heard, I'd like to launch a poll to the audience to see how they feel about socializing with their colleagues as they return to work. We will uh, change gears a little bit. Um, I'm gonna ask this one to Dr. Laura Fruin. Um, with the easing of restrictions, people at all levels of the organization are being asked to change the way that they work and interact both professionally and socially. Do you think this will or has changed the way that we are going to function in the workplace? Yeah, so I think we will definitely experience a different kind of workplace coming back into our work. Um, and part of that difference that we will experience will be rooted in this forced break that we've just had from the normal way of doing things. So we've actually been now in a situation where we've changed the way that we've done our work for a while. And this has been sort of quite a dominant break in what we were used to do. And I think there's a couple of things that people could reflect on when now taking the restart you know, going back into work and in the process of that, there's a couple of things that you can reflect about I think that will be very useful and that will be changes that we are likely to experience. So the first one is um, quite specific to our experience now with remote work. Um, I think there's sort of this tendency to see remote work as not effective or people slacking off at home. My sense is that this has now been sufficiently debunked. We've seen people can work effectively from home. And 
this, um, what we've experienced over the last few months, is actually quite well backed up by research that it doesn't matter necessarily where people work, very often they're very capable actually of selecting the best places for doing their work. And we generally know that this giving people this type of autonomy of letting them choose where they want to conduct their work can be very empowering. It's actually good for people's well-being and also for their performance. So we know also from research that, for example, teams, when they work closely together, for example, in the same office, they're not necessarily more efficient and performing better than teams that work separated, for example, on different floors or even in different buildings. In fact, teams who operate in different buildings or on different floors show higher levels of efficiency. And that is because they are very likely more conscious of the way that they communicate with each other and cooperate. And I think that that's probably one of the things that we will take with us as well coming back into the office now, a new appreciation for remote work and also a, a more consciousness of how we coordinate and cooperate at work. Um, the second aspect I think that's really useful to sort of reflect about coming back into the office now um, is more widely about how we do work. Um, I remember at the start of all of us going back working from home or those of us that could there was this tweet going around on twitter um, that basically said oh now we've realized that all those meetings could have really been emails um, so i think now also going back into the office there's a real opportunity to reassess how we do our work um, there may be some reflections i know from my personal experience for example having changed my teaching to an online mode i used a flipped classroom mode so i pre-recorded lectures and that freed up time in zoom sessions to do lots of activities and I'm very likely to retain this model for my future teaching for my unit, for example. And I think the third aspect that's useful um, in going back into the office is a reflection about culture and the usefulness of it. So we've seen that organizations who had to make this drastic change towards working remotely, working together while being separately, will have had an easier time if they had a very well-established culture, very well-established shared norms and values. And that's like a glue that keeps everyone together. And these values travel with people. It doesn't matter where they work. If you have an organization that has sort of an intuitive agreement about what matters and what the purpose is, employees will perform better in those contexts. And I think that that will also be something that will be useful to take back into the workplace now, um, this appreciation of those values and the power of those values in uh, enabling and empowering employees. Thank you, Laura. That's very interesting to see how the changes are, you're seeing them so positively. I think that really um, leads into our second polling question, which is to say, has COVID-19 actually increased people's trust in their workplace? So I'll put that on while we ask our next question, which will be directed to you again, Laura. And that is, do you think that changes to how we work mean that employers now need to displace fear and trust issues with this electronic performance and monitoring, as you kind of already um, touched on? And does this ensure business stability or will this be the death of the micromanager? Okay, I think first off, so there are two assumptions to this question. The first one is that um, monitoring employees is a good thing and that um, watching someone work will make them work better. And the second one is that the, measuring the amount of time that someone spends at their desk will mean that they're actually doing more work. I can tell you right now that um, both of those assumptions are false. It's not actually true. Um, so we know that time spent at a desk doesn't mean you will actually work more. In fact, we know from those organizations where people tend to leave after the boss has left, they're actually not doing more work. They're just dragging out the things that they're doing and just spending more time doing the things that they would have achieved in less time as well. Um, the other aspect of this is actually it's problematic in that we know that watching someone work or perform 
actually affects them negatively. And first of all, it affects their performance negatively. And this has been an effect that's been replicated several times in the psychology literature. But I'll tell you about one study, which I think is very interesting. It's an old one, but it shows the same effect that we're finding in humans as well. And I mentioned humans because the study I'm going to talk about involves cockroaches. Um, and this study was um, asking cockroaches or giving them the task of running through a maze. Um, and it was either a simple maze where they just had to run straight or a more complex maze where they had to make a turn. And the cockroaches were navigating those mazes in two conditions, one where they were watched by other cockroaches and the other one where they were, were independently or just walking on them by themselves. So what the study found was that if you give a cockroach a simple maze and they're being watched, they'll run faster than when they're not being watched. But if you give a cockroach a complex maze and they're being watched, they'll actually perform worse. They'll be slower compared to when they're not watched. And this, for, uh, this effect that we call social facilitation for, for simple tasks and social inhibition for more complex tasks, that replicates in humans. So actually by monitoring electronically or otherwise your employee's performance in that way, tracking their movements online and, and their, their clicking rate, et cetera, you are very likely to actually create negative effects for their performance. The other more wider effects of monitoring employees is that it's, it's very negatively viewed by employees. It has a clear impact on their stress. It affects their mental health and well-being. And I would very clearly say that, you know, those negative reactions are justified because to me that would signal a toxic work environment. Um, and I think, you know, the alternative to monitoring is clearly good leadership. So what are the things that an, a leader or an organization could do to ensure that employees achieve their goals? Um, that can involve, you know, particularly what we've seen now with the remote work that managing by results is very useful. So setting clear goals for people, clear expectations, communicate those very clearly, but at the same time, trust your employees, give them the benefit of the doubt and offer guidance and support and inspire them to be motivated and to do their best at work. So I think that's really, really important to take away that this type of monitoring, especially this electronic monitoring cannot replace good leadership. So it's, I don't think it's a very good idea. Uh, great answer. Uh, well, now we should switch gears from the actual leaders to some, how some of the workers are attending work. So I'm going to take this question to Alex, which is traditionally many workers attend work while ill. And in some cultures, it's thought to be normal or expected to go in when you're sick. Um, what do you think is the motivation and expectation for presenteeism? Excellent question. Uh, thank you. So I study presenteeism is when employees uh, come to work despite their illness. It can be um, a flu, um, injuries or other medical conditions that prevent them from being fully productive, motivated and engaged. And there are different reasons why people come to work being sick. Uh, and we talk about avoidance motivation and approach motivation. Avoidant motivation uh, suggests that people come to work being sick because they are worried about job security. They don't want to want, uh, they don't want to overburden their coworkers with additional tasks, and so they're trying to avoid repercussions of not being at work. And this is why they come to work being sick. Uh, there are other employees and uh, uh, who come to work because they're just passionate about their work. They they're loyal. They're committed. And they come to work because they think this is the right thing to do. And uh, we call it as approach motivation. And currently, uh, I and my colleague, Gillian Yu, uh, we, um, we examine presenteeism during the pandemic. So right now, everyone knows that coming to work with flu-like symptoms is a really bad thing. It's dangerous for your own well-being, and it's a potentially um, it's a contagious disease. And 
it presents uh, a health and safety hazard. However, I still remember we were uh, in a restaurant uh, in Perth. At that time, we were able to um, attend restaurants. That was on, on March 10th. And uh, we were discussing this, um, uh, this event when one man in Tasmania came back from overseas with flu-like symptoms and he went and tested for COVID-19 and he was told to self-isolate while he was waiting for the results. However, that man did not obey the instructions and went to work. And it turned out that he tested positive for COVID-19. And I and my colleague, we decided to investigate why, why is it the case? Why presenteeism uh, during the pandemic is still the case? Why not everyone uh, stays at home when uh, they're sick? And uh, miraculously or luckily, we collected data on presenteeism in um, early February when it was just the beginning of a pandemic, at least here in Australia, uh, in the United States. Um, and then we tracked the same people uh, several times. So we collected the same data on presenteeism and motivation in early May, when, we, when it was clear that it's a pandemic, uh, World Health Organization declared it as a pandemic. And uh, we looked at the changes and there were some promising and good changes. So first of all, the rate of presenteeism declined, and I'm talking about self-reported uh, data. Uh, so so uh, people said that on average, uh, when they have flu-like uh, symptoms, they stay at home. However, it's still the mean wasn't zero. There still were people who turned up to work even though they felt sick. So we asked them, why do you do that? Uh, and we measured uh, avoidance and approach motivation. And interestingly, the approach motivation, when people feel passionate, loyal, committed to their job, stayed the same in early February or early May. However, interestingly, avoidance motivation uh, dropped, meaning that, so we interpreted these correlational data that people still have good intentions when they engage in presenteeism, even during the pandemic. We're also very interested to examine, so is there anything that organizations can do to curb uh, these um, health and safety hazard uh, presenteeism, potential negative consequences? And we looked at the presenteeism climate. Sometimes organizations can inadvertently, implicitly create the culture where everyone is encouraged to come to work even though they are sick. So for example, organizations that encourage more hours, we encourage physical presence, reward place time. So inadvertently that these organizations can um, create, uh, can encourage uh, presenteeism. And indeed we found the positive correlations. And based on this data, we think that the implications for organizations is first of all, to uh, not create a culture of presenteeism. And you can do that by having formal paid sick leave. And we're lucky in Australia, we do have those but also informally by creating a culture where if you come, if you are sick, you just stay at home and you know that you can do that and you will not be reprimanded for staying at home. And also um, for organizations, um, so our health, uh, the chief medical officer, Brendan Murphy recently said that maybe it's time for us to drop our soldier own mindset and stop going to work when we uh, feel sick. And I think maybe, not maybe, but most probably he's right. So, um, and it's, it will preserve your own health and also the health of others. Thanks, Alex, uh, very interesting. I think it'd be interesting to see what, how our audience feels about this. So I'd like to see, ask 
was um, presenteeism a pervasive culture in your own personal workplace prior to COVID-19? And then I will continue on with our panelist questions. Um, so Alex, in the current circumstances, what do you think is the trade-off between public health and business continuity? Yeah, so and I think this my answer will be somewhat uh, related to uh, Laura's answer because, um, yes, many organizations and uh, leaders are currently uh, face the challenge of uh, balancing these two conflicting uh, goals on the one hand. So when we all go back, uh, we need to make sure that the workplace is safe and uh, we need to, uh, to follow all the guidelines. But on the other hand, the leaders and organizations also must um, have the strategic goals of continuing um, profitability. And so, and this is the issue that UWA has. So if we're going face to face, we, make sure, we need to make sure that all our students feel safe and uh, don't create this presenteeism culture. So I think, um, so an outlined uh, four um, changes or four ways that the organizations can do to balance uh, between these operational goal and strategic goal of creating a healthy uh, work environment, but also a profitable work environment. So obviously, and as Laura said, uh, the organization must change. So if we put in place all these um, health and workplace um, safety um, uh, measures, uh, it's one way, but also the other way is uh, time that we change the workplace. So uh, Laura already discussed this uh, telework or telecommuting, and each measure has its costs and benefits. And I think the way forward is to minimize uh, cost and to maximize benefits. So for example, we know that telecommuting has lots of benefits, flexibility, freedom in how and when we do our work. Uh, but then there are these costs that people who work from home may feel lonely, isolated, and maybe leaders may not trust them. And they need, uh, they have less control. Um, but uh, again, the um, if we want to go forward and if we want to um, uh, operate in this environment, so telecommuting and creating uh, telecommuting and supporting telecommuting is very important because again, um, uh, if we don't want to encourage presenteeism culture, then again, telecommuting should be the way forward. If you feel sick, um, you don't want to um, uh, present a health and safety risk to your coworkers, stay at home. If you can work, you can work from home. So another one is virtual teams. Um, again, uh, the benefits is that well, when you work in virtual teams, everyone can participate. Uh, it's maybe even a, a more rapid and more effective way of doing work because people can work at their convenience almost 24-7, especially if it's um, across different geographical areas. Um, also, reduction of commuting time and even better air uh, reduced air pollution. But again, what are some costs is that um, in virtual teams, uh, the risk of conflict is higher. So there's very interesting research about escalation of conflict by emails. If you put something in cap letters, so I'm sure everyone has read those emails. If you just say a neutral phrase in cap letters, you feel that the person is shouting at you, even if it's a very neutral phrase. So the solution again um, is how to manage the, those virtual teams and how to integrate virtual leadership um, in virtual teams. And then HR practices. So um, on the one hand, uh, um, again, HR 
needs to integrate all those health and safety measures, but then on the other, some operational uh, decisions must be made. And um, so in general, voters just suggest avoid involuntary layoffs, uh, but if there is downsizing, then maybe you can make uh, strategic downsizing on performing units, maybe uh, reduced their working hours, low performing units can be uh, their work can be maximized. But again, the most important thing is that all these decisions must be done in, um, in a very, in a fair manner, because there is even research about uh, downsizing and layoffs, uh, that if you um, lay off people, but you discuss and, uh, and explain to them why these difficult decisions are made, then you can minimize the voluntary turnover of the remaining employees. Thank you, Alex. Uh, that's very interesting to understand that trade-off between public health and business continuity. So I'll just launch one of our other questions, which is, um, would the audience be more likely now to stay home with cold and flu symptoms now that you're returning to work? And with that, we're going to change gears a little bit and look at some population density um, type questions. So this will be directed towards, I guess, both Allison and Julian, whoever wants to hop on first. Um, but historically and currently, um, do you think that the density of cities has played a part in the spread of COVID-19? And do you think this will be the potential cause for a second wave? Just let me talk about the virology aspect first, and then Julian's expertise in, in, uh, in, in design and so on. But, but we know definitely that this is a virus that is very contagious, and it has transmitted very efficiently among crowds of people in cities. We saw that from the very beginning, right? So uh, it's a respiratory infection and a highly contagious respiratory infection. So for sure, uh, being in dense environments has, has very much um, supported transmission of this virulent infection, which is not good. So, um, and we've seen that the lockdowns that took place very quickly after the virus emerged in Wuhan, right, in China, were effective. And we've seen that those lockdowns have been very effective in cities outside China, when uh, certainly here in Western Australia. And by lockdown, I'm referring to the, 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 um, the restricted border, right? We've, we've seen very efficient um, um, uh, limitation of transmission in this state. So, and we've certainly seen in North America, as an example, and other places, that when you uh, start to ignore those restrictions or those limits on, on crowding, pe people getting together in crowded spaces, that you support transmission and then you get this huge increase, right? Very dramatic increases in, in rates of infection and in transmission. So that is, we understand that this is a feature of this infection and this disease, clearly. So, th so it's, it's a, it, not a political choice, but it becomes a personal choice to uh, decide to stay in, limited, of course, by what we're able to do because of our um, financial situations, whether we need a job and so on. So that those are uh, other, other aspects that we feed into those um, decisions or ways that we live our lives. But, um, but it's very clear that um, being in, in, in dense crowds, even, um, even in crowds in, in environments that are not cities themselves, but in any place where people are gathering together. And um, this is, a, again, a respiratory infection, so you need to be close to people to transmit the virus, right? This, it's, it's very straightforward calculation. So we understand how it's transmitted. Um, and it's a question of dose. It's how much exposure you have to someone who is themselves infectious. So, so we know that. 
and in the cities that uh, we've been following since the beginning of this event uh, throughout the early part of this year and more recently, uh, we can see that uh, it's not just being uh, in, in, a, in a building or in a, an environment where there are lots of people. There are um, aspects to living in a city that certainly influence how uh, this virus is transmitted. And we talked about this earlier, it includes um, transport, public transport, right? So when you have to get from one place to another, in big cities, you're in um, uh, subways and metros and on buses. Um, and, and that increases your risk of exposure and infection. So those are very clear uh, equations, right? So, but how we, how we work with that going forward is, is um, these are hard questions. And certainly the structure of cities and buildings and, and, and uh, infrastructures within cities, uh, certainly all of that contributes. Alison, if I can follow on from that. Um, yeah, I think there's two things as applies to urban density. Um, one of the problems is cities, when they get denser, people are typically living in uh, buildings which are more likely apartment buildings. We have a, an increase in communal spaces, whether it's hallways, communal lifts, communal open spaces and communal uh, car parks, which are all potential zones for transmission, which is reduced a lot when people live at a lower suburban density. Uh, in a suburban house, um, there's a kind of, most of those sort of functions of parking and, and access to open space are privatised. And so they are in some degree safer from transmission. So as urban density increases, the amount of communal space within a building increases, and that would seem to present more risks. There's a second dimension to it too. Um, so we conducted a survey of 290 planners around Australia about how they felt pandemics such as COVID-19 would affect city design. Density was perceived as a big issue um, by most of the respondents. And one thing they identified was it's also about the livability during a lockdown, which is if you're locked down in a studio apartment, which is 38 square metres in, I don't know, Kings Cross in Sydney, you know, when you've signed up to that lifestyle, this King's Cross's bars and cafes are your living room and they become kind of part of your, your lived experience of being in that part of the world and living in an urban, dense neighbourhood. Um, the problem is when you're locked down, you lose access to, to those places that would be your sort of communal living room and you really are just stuck in your studio apartment. The livability uh, in such settings then drops away and then it becomes harder to endure a lockdown and it probably becomes harder to maintain your resolve to continue to adhere to social distancing. So there's a kind of feedback loop there which is concerning and I think could start to play out in a second wave where people feel like they've been through this sort of deprivation of, 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 of a lockdown once and are less inclined to do it again. I have to say, um, suburban dwellings and gardens and houses are well set up for lockdowns. You can grow a bit of food. The kids can run around in nature and, and you know, not destroy the joint. Um, I think there are mental and physical health benefits from having access to a garden. Uh, you, you know, you can generate your own electricity. You can capture rainwater. There's a kind of self-sufficiency which can go with suburban living, which resonates, I think, in, in lockdown settings. We, we saw that anecdotally. Um, there's been, a, I think, some to some degree, a rediscovery of the Australian suburban dream in the last lockdown. So, you know, there's no, um, it doesn't mean urban density must yield greater transmission. I, I don't think it's that simple. There's a lot of factors in play, um, as Alison has alluded to, but it certainly is one factor. 
And I think the thing we just finally on that, we need to be careful that we distinguish between crowding and urban density, because you can have a lot of buildings with very little people living in them, um, which is probably fine from the perspective of transmission. It's where you have high density cities with also crowding in rooms in particular and also communal spaces where I believe we really can start to have issues around transmission. So kind of really carrying right on with that question, how do you think this is going to change how buildings are designed? Um, do you think building designs are going to become less tactile? Yeah, I, I think they will be. I think, as we've talked about, there will be a shift from communal spaces to trying to uh, really delineate more private space. So rather than having communal gardens, which perhaps everyone accesses, maybe it's more about separating those out into sort of private spaces where people can recreate in private in, in nature to some degree. I think we might look at a situation where you don't try and load 20 apartments onto a communal lift well or stairwell, um, where you actually provide greater vert vert um, vertical circulation in the building to give people more options, more private entrances perhaps rather than shared entrances. So I think there'll be a reassessment of how buildings are designed, particularly apartment buildings. And I, I do just generally think there will be a shift back to suburban living. I think uh, all of the state governments in Australia are trying to do density, particularly around transit hubs, which looks a bit weird in this day and age. Um, and I think there will be a public shift, a public sentiment shift back towards the suburban dream. So our buildings will become probably less dense and more suburban and more um, semi-detached or completely detached. I'm very interesting to see that apartments might be the ones that get hit the hardest. So do you think in that case that they're going to have to rethink the entire design of cities, given the flexibility of working from home and what you've just discussed with the building design? Look, I think to some degree, but we have to be, we have to recognise that there's a, that there's a numerous uh, number of different factors which shape cities. Um, a city's biophysical context will shape a city. Climate shapes a city. Um, the culture of the people who live in it shapes the city. Their, their dream for what they want in their life, whether it's urban or suburban, all these things shape cities. Economics are a huge shaper of cities. So um, are pandemics are kind of forcible shape cities going forward? Yes, very much. I think they will be, but it's within this larger, larger mix of factors. So, but our 289 planners who we surveyed had a couple of key, key messages for us, um, which I think are interesting. So they, I mean, I think people have been generally pretty positive about this working from home idea. Now, the internet's been around since the 1990s and all kinds of different um, City commentators have talked about how cities will be out of be dissolved and they'll kind of just disperse out into the regions and you could sit under a, a gum tree in, in 2J, which is in regional Western Australia, and do your work there and you won't, we won't really need cities. Funnily enough, the last 30 years have tended to um, run counter to that, that we've really still valued face-to-face -face connections. But I think that has been um, really unsettled in the last months. And so I think there will be a kind of push to increasingly considering living in outer suburban or regional locations. Some 40% of our respondents said they were more inclined to live in the regions post the pandemic. Um, so I think there is an idea that you could telecommute to work a couple of days and, and perhaps uh, commute in on a fairly long commute, you know, the other day or two a week. So it could be a happy balance. But certainly our respondents were talking a lot about you know, a city being able to be dis dissolved somewhat into the regions, into outer suburban locations. 
Um, the other re major rethinking of cities, which was talked about by one of the panellists, was public transport. So for 30 years, we've been trying to do density around public transit, so which is heavy rail or, or um, rapid bus transit. And wow, that's suddenly looking like not such a great idea. We're finding a lot of our respondents are saying they're less comfortable about taking public transport now uh, for, for good, you know, for what would seem good reason. So I think there's going to be a shift in our city design back to private transport, which could mean cars, but it also could mean things like electric bicycles and electric scooters and skateboards. And I ride my bike into work when I now do go to work. And I have to say the bike paths are just lined with these alternative modes of transport, which are emerging in parallel with the pandemic in a way. Um, so I think we are increasingly, there's going to be a shift away from public transport and we're going to look at, there'll be a whole number of emerging types of private transport, which will be of increasing importance. I think my, finding, my final point in, round, in relation to city design was that um, people are obviously becoming more aware of the brittleness of global supply chains. And we have received a lot of commentary from our respondents about um, self-sufficiency and resiliency and growing food and, and, and and having a city which, when it's locked down, a smaller, more compact city, which might be a regional one, which, when it's locked down, it can more or less survive quite comfortably, rather than being um, at risk and very vulnerable to brittle supply chains, which, which can be disrupted. Um, now, of course, there's a lot of factors going on here, and the global economy will no doubt reassert itself uh, coming out of this. But certainly our respondents were very much in a mood that we need to become much more resilient and self-reliant within our cities generally, but even within neighbourhoods within a city. So I kind of shift back to the local economy um, as being something which is really a positive and resiliency building in these times. Interesting. Thank you, Julian. Um, I think that leads really well into our last question for the audience, which is um, upon returning to work, which is a following presents the most risk for you. And these are all things he's kind of touched on with his urban design. Um, I'll leave that up, but we will head into some audience questions that the panel will be um, answering for you guys. So um, one of the kind of themes today was working from home, which kind of diminishes social interaction. And quite a few audience members have asked you guys, how is this loss of social interaction, first of all, how will organizations be able to nurture their culture without it if they're always in virtual teams, but also is it going to have other impacts on their culture, the productivity, perspectives, and such? Um, I'll just let you guys answer as you see fit. I might maybe start on this one. Um, I think in terms of when we think about workplace culture and also the degree of virtuality, is that so when researchers think about virtuality, it's not a yes or no question. So even when you used to work in your office nine to five, five days a week, there would have already been a virtual aspect of your work. Uh, for example, sending that message on a chat to your colleague down the hall or sending an email to someone. So we've always had this element of virtual work. And I kind of agree with Julian that this technology of internet, it's been around for so long, but it's almost like we've pretended those things don't exist and just gone on to work the way that we used to and just adopting it in some ways. But now we've shifted towards really making a strong case towards remote work and different ways of interacting. So I think the, the important thing to consider here is that one, we have always had over the last years virtual interactions and two is that the interactions, the mode may be different, but they, their purpose is still the same. And there may be some rituals that you may need to replace. So for example, a WhatsApp chat can replace that water cooler 
um, you know, or um, we had in our team, we did a Friday lunch meeting uh, once a week. It's those types of things that can be replaced, but it's also, I think those questions around culture, culture is not something that is created separate to the work that you do. Every decision that in particular leaders make, how they spend their resources, that shapes culture more than any, let's have a party here or let's do a team building exercise. Because those are the things that go to the basic assumptions and values that people have. And that really, really shapes culture more than um, those interactions that people are mentioning, um, whether they're face-to-face -face or virtual. And also, can I, can I quickly add? So uh, people make the place and this pandemic actually showed us some surprising and unattended consequences of um, working from home. So when we always have those meetings via Zoom, so people get a sense uh, of really knowing their coworkers very well when you see uh, who your kids are, who your spouses, pets, uh, your work environment, uh, your home environment, that actually gives a very intimate uh, knowledge of your coworkers, which again, strength, strengthens the social connections and social connections are part of the culture. Thank you guys. Um, I will move on to something probably more in Julian's direction, but it's asking if the traditional office block model is going to stay with us now that we're all going virtual like with worker bees traveling to and from with associated costs, or are we going to perhaps lose office buildings or they'll become less normal? Mm, yeah, that's an interesting question. Look, I think they'll need to get more flexible. Um, so I think the idea of having um, a building where people are attending some of the week, but not other parts of the week would imply that it's probably could be rationalised, the amount of space that is required in an office building for workers might be able to be rationalised. It might be more shared with care, of course, given the issues of sharing, but that you, it's probably going to be more like a hot desking kind of arrangement, I would imagine, um, than a more formal office such as it might be now. So I think, I think we'll probably need slightly less of them and as part of that, we'll, as they get rationalised, they'll probably necessarily need to become more flexible but I don't think they will cease to exist by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, if you look at the Australian economy, 80% of Australia's GDP is still funneled through the central street blocks of Melbourne and Sydney. So our economy still is, in terms, it's very heavily spatialised still, despite the fact that there is online work going on within that. So I think proximity will remain important um, and I don't think it's gonna be the end of the office block. Uh, however, some people might enjoy that. Uh, perfect. Thank you for your answer. Um, this next one I'll ask is, do you think employee career progression or appraisal will be changing with this pandemic um, when most people are telecommunicating or interacting virtually? That's a very uh, interesting question, especially uh, right now when we are debating should we have goal performance appraisals review at the university or not, or if yes, uh, are we going to be just congratulating each other that we kind of survived. Um, so um, I think obviously um, um, careers will change. Uh, into, I don't think careers will change, but maybe perceptions to career. So, um, so to perceptions to your um, work effectiveness. So uh, some people found that actually working from home, they are more productive, more focused, uh, more motivated. And so uh, during pandemic, they were more effective, uh, whereas others uh, found this way of working really distracting. Um, so I think um, 
perceptions to your to, to your work methods will change. So, not sure about careers. I mean, obviously, with the job losses and uh, so, for example, I study overqualifications. So, I think uh, after this pandemic, we'll have lots of overqualified people who have more skills, abilities, talents than acquired for a job, and there will be. Uh, um, oversupply of overqualified people so and you know, also, also, it may also have some positive side effects like sucking up to the boss might be much harder in an online environment <laughs> you know so it could also have positive effects that we just I had a boss and I like people sucking up to me so I don't know what that means <laughs> um, I guess we I think we have time for one more um, I'll use this one here so this one was um, directed towards Laura but I, anyone can please jump in it's just asking on how you may be able to influence leaders to continue to enable genuine flexible working now that we've seen that it works so particularly those whose teams are customer facing yeah so me being a researcher I think my obvious answer would be show them the evidence whether that's from the research that we have or in your own work demonstrate that you are effectively working from home that you're hitting your milestones um, be convincing in making the case. Um, and I think hopefully if you work in a mature organization where people see the value in their employees and the value of offering this flexibility, um, that a leader would be inclined to say yes. Um, I also feel like you know the social norms around where we work and how we see remote work have changed. So I would hope that this case would be easier to make by now. And also that there's sufficient evidence to show you know, remote work can be really effective. Now, can I just say, um, I think it very much depends on the kind of work that you do. I mean, some of us are fortunate in that we can choose to work between our home office and our work office, if you put it that way. Uh, but there are many people who can't, right? And so they have to go somewhere to do some stuff, you know, with their hands or do something. And I think that's, that, I think that's gonna be really difficult uh, challenge for uh, some companies will be able to do a much better job at protecting them and making sure that their environments are safe and some companies not so much and that doesn't include all of those people who are you know they have different employment status you know they're, they're not on a on a, on a full-time job they might be casual or un under some other kind of structure and I think they're the people that are going to be the most difficult to protect and they're the ones who unfortunately uh, will be most susceptible and who are the people who are maybe invisible, bit less visible to our system, uh, so harder to track to uh, ensure that they are not themselves contagious and, and acting as, as, uh, as, um, as uh, uh, vectors, if you like, for, for, for this disease. I think that's the challenge that's going to be really difficult in, in the next years for this country, but much more so for other countries, much more so. That's a hard uh, that will be the end of our question and answer session. I just want to say a huge thank you to all of the panelists for being here and answering these very important themes. I'm going to pass off now back to Andrew Page to give us our closing remarks. Thanks very much for that. And yet once, and I would like to um, reiterate my thanks to all of the panel members as well as the moderator for this evening's very thought-provoking discussion. I guess for me, as I was listening to it, one of the main themes that came through was how this pandemic, we look forward about the way it's going to change the way we live. At the start of this pandemic, I, I, I was curious to know how it would play out. And so I went back and reread The Plague 
by Albert Camus. And what's interesting is if you read that, he lays out in The Plague of Iran what is happening now in our, in our experience of the pandemic. But curiously, he starts with, there's a society that's just carrying on with living and loving prior to the plague. Then it happens and everybody's surprised and said, oh, how, how would this happen? The world is never going to be the same again. But the end of the book, the world just goes back to the way it was. And so I think one reflection I would have is, is the world really going to change? Or are we just going through the same process that Albert Camus was having there? And some of this is going to be, we are going to have to propel that change to work against the inertia to fall back to what we were. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. And what you've heard this evening is how um, the researchers at UWA are speaking into that conversation, as all of our researchers at the university are working on humanity's grand challenges. And you as alumni are invited to be part of that conversation, as you have been in this event, as in um, future research impact events. I should mention that the UWA round of the three-minute thesis com competition in 2020 will take place on September 11th. And you as, as alumni and community members will be invited to view the finalist entries. And we'd be really keen to have your involvement because you'll be able to vote on the three-minute thesis People's Choice Award. So I'd like to thank you for joining us. And in closing, I'd like to quote uh, close with a quote from Albert Camus, where he says, What's true of all evils in the world is true of the plague as well. It helps people to rise above themselves. So on that inspiration, I'd like to say thank you to all. Goodbye.